Hello everybody, um, we're live again with MHTV. Um, tonight we're talking about patient experience and we've got a brilliant um, lineup on our panel. Um, so I'm going to start with um, introductions. So first over to Nikki, who's um, co-presenting and running the social media tonight as well. Hello everybody, it's nice to see you. Um, we've got um, MHTV on Facebook Live, so if you want to comment as you go along there, I'll be collating those. And we're also on Twitter under the hashtag MHTV. So please feel free to ask any questions. If there's anything you don't understand, you want us to come back to, absolutely please ask. Thank you. Cheers. Brilliant. Okay, um, over to Scott next on my screen here. Thanks. I'm really pleased to be here. So my name is Scott Wash. I'm Professor of Mental Health in the University of Sheffield, and I'm also a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS. Brilliant. Thank you. And Sarah-Jane? Hello, I'm Sarah-Jane. I'm a lecturer in mental health policy at the University of Birmingham in the Institute for Mental Health, and I was the research fellow working with Scott on the Euripides study. Excellent. Thank you. And over to James. Hi there, my name's James Munro. I'm Chief Exec at Care Opinion, which is a non-profit organisation. We provide uh, an online feedback platform for people to share their experiences of health or social care across the UK. Brilliant, and thank you because you suggested tonight's session, so that's great. And um, finally, we've got Mark Brown. Mark, do you want to just... Yeah. yeah, well, my, my name is Mark Brown. Thank you for speaking to me. I'm Mark Brown. I do mental health stuff. Um, and I am Mark one in four in, on Twitter. Um, if you want to look me up and then promptly unfollow me or block me quite properly. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. So um, tonight we're talking about the Euripides study, um, which is um, about patient experience. So we're looking at patient experience in terms of how do people um, comment on experiences of care in inpatient settings, um, in mental health specifically, and also what happens with that feedback afterwards and how do we use it to improve practice. So I'm going to go straight over to Scott, first of all, just to give us a summary of the study and some of the findings. Okay, well, th thanks very much. And, and it was quite a complicated study, so I'll, I'll try to be very brief because I know the point of tonight is to get lots of good conversation going. Uh, so this was a study that was funded as part of a, a host of about eight studies that were all funded at the same time by the National Institute of Health Research. And they were funded by uh, kind of knowledge that arose really from the Francis report, which said that when things go wrong in the NHS, the kind of safeguard, the antidote to that was making sure that we always listen to the patient voice. And if we did that, then we would, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go far wrong. And so that then triggered things like the initiation of the friends and family test. So all of these research projects were, were, were funded at the same time to try to look at and develop best practice. In, in terms of, of how we can better capture and use patient experience. Uh, ours was the only study that was specifically and, and only about mental health care. And we focused on inpatient services because mental health services are very diverse and large. And we wanted to make sure that we you know, could zero in on, on, on really clear findings. We started by reviewing the evidence of what patients say and have told researchers over many years that, that you know, they value most about the care that they receive. And we found lots and lots of studies and probably, I think we included about 70 or 80 
papers. So we had a really good idea about the aspects of care that are most important and that are most associated with really good quality uh, care and experiences. We then went out and surveyed, so Jane did this, she went out and surveyed all of the patient experience leads uh, in NHS mental health trusts and spoke to close to 50 patient experience leads so that we could understand what they were doing in terms of the, the information they were gathering, how they were using it, where it fit into their organizations and how much service users and carers were involved in shaping that process. Um, on the basis of that and being able to characterize all of the trusts in the way, we selected six that we went to and did in-depth interviews with service users, with ward staff and with managers in those trusts to really understand the process of, of, of how this feedback is gathered and what happens to it once, once it's given, where it goes and what use it's put to. And we can speak about the results tonight, very complicated and nuanced as I'm sure you'll understand. But we build this essentially into 18 rules that would guide trusts in what to do to get things right. We found out you know, lots about why people sometimes give feedback and why they don't, mm. about what staff have to do to get meaningful feedback. We also learned that by and large, I'm sorry to say, that this information isn't really used very often in terms of sort of shaping uh, services. And very often the people that give the feedback don't get to find out much about what's happened as a result of it. Um, and, and, and we learned where, where the gaps are. Uh, I, won't, I won't say more at this stage because otherwise you know, I could speak for 20 or 30 minutes about mm. this. I know we want to have a conversation. Brilliant. Thank you. That's really good. And Sarah Jane, I wondered if there's anything you wanted to add, because I know you were really involved in terms of the service user involvement aspect, as Scott said. Um, is there anything you want to Yes, so um, we had um, a really um, uh, great team of research uh, support. So the Mental Health Foundation um, chaired a lay uh, reference group who were very involved in the study. They helped us um, decide what was important in the findings. So we acted out the interview transcripts and they came up with the themes for uh, the qualitative work so that we could build our coding frameworks. And we also had two survivor researchers who helped carry out the interviews and were actually in the sites with us. So observing things and helping us make sense of what was going on. So it was um, nice to have that kind of two pronged approach, the survivor research and the lay reference group uh, to help us determine what were really what was really critical and what we really needed to pay attention to and the things that were being said. I think um, that's really important, isn't it? Because at first when I was looking at it as um, a mental health nurse and I used to manage um, acute wards a long time ago, I was thinking about it from um, a, definitely a clinical perspective. But some of the things that it highlighted, for example, um, you know, the assumption that people when they're very unwell um, can't give valid feedback. Um, there was also um, something that struck me about um, people only giving feedback towards the end of um, their patient experience. So I wondered um, what your thoughts were, if you could share anything with us on those themes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the um, the when we did the national telephone survey and we spoke to patient experience leads in trusts, um, two trusts will be doing exactly the same thing. So they might be collecting a friends and family test or doing the same sort of patient story work. Uh, and they would say that uh, one 
patient experience lead would say in the first trust, we get our best data from inpatient services. Uh, and then you would speak to someone down the road where they were doing exactly the same thing. And they say, we really bad data from inpatient services. It's our poorest area of data collection. Um, and the reasons that they gave were that people were either too unwell. And so they didn't ask them or they couldn't give their feedback um, or that they were there. And so it was really easy to ask them because they were there all the time because they were in inpatient settings. And those two um, logics may have both been true, but we needed to really do that in-depth work to work out why with the same process, essentially, you got such a very different outcome. Um, and what we were able to do with that was to debunk the myth uh, that people are too unwell to give you their feedback. So they may be uh, unwell at a particular point in their journey and not able to give you very detailed feedback about the ward or to reflect on it at that particular point. But everyone can tell you, no matter what point of the day they're at, whether or not they're experiencing their care as bad care or good care. And I think it's it's the sort of type of feedback you're trying to get from people mm -hmm. at that point that we determined was really critical. Um, but it was very important that we, we did push back that myth that people are too unwell to give you their yeah. Definitely. Um, any thoughts, um, James, from yourself? I know you. I know we talked about this study. Probably is it going on for a year ago? You made me aware of it, and we were talking then um, about about having this conversation. Um, mm. And you know, I'm pleased that you've you've raised it with us, and that we're here chatting about it tonight. So, I wondered if you had any any thoughts. Well, I, just to pick up on one thing that's already been said, actually, which is this this. Um, uh, people being invited only to give feedback at the end of a stay. And I, I, I think that sort of points us towards something that, that I think is prevalent in healthcare, which is in, in many organisations, feedback is seen as something you have to be invited to do on the organisation's terms. So when you're allowed to give feedback, it, the organization says, you know, now you can give feedback because you're about to go home or because you, you know, because you went home a week ago or something. Um, and also the things that, in a sense, uh, you're allowed to talk about, the, the nature of the feedback is often on all, all the organization's terms also. So the friends and family test is a classic example, of course, uh, because it asks a nonsensical question. Um, which means nothing and is actually found quite offensive by often by patients and families or historically was before they changed it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's on the organisation's terms. It's because the, you know, the NHS wants to measure things in a certain way. So it asks a certain question. But, I, but to me, the importance of feedback is that people should be able to feedback on their own terms when, yeah. when yeah. they want to and indeed about the things that matter to them. And then you discover a whole set of different things. This takes us to the to Scott and Scott's starting point with the Francis inquiry and the mid-staffs and so on. It's terribly important that people are allowed to give feedback on their own terms because otherwise they can't tell you things that you don't really want to hear, that you don't ask about. So so I think that you know right away we're into this question of what's feedback for, whose feedback is it and to what extent does it challenge power relationships between users and, and professionals. Yeah, I think that's really striking, isn't it? Because as we were saying about um, when people are really unwell, that they're less likely to give feedback or feel that their feedback isn't valid. And I know that um, the study picked out on trust issues as well, that if people were um, in a trusting therapeutic relationship with the clinician, they were more likely to give feedback and also makes me think um, about online feedback 
because you see a lot of people um, tweeting about their experiences um, and, you know, really interesting that people have to do that to have a voice in their in their care, isn't it? And I wonder um, whether, Mark, you might want to come in at this point if you've got any thoughts on this. I'm sure you've got lots. In fact. I, I, I've got a few thoughts. I think I'm very, very sorry, Vanessa. Um, so the, the first thing I want to say is, is the experience of being in hospital for your mental health is something that won't happen to the majority of people in the population. But for the people it does happen to, it's a massive, massive thing. It's a huge experience to go through. So the first thing is thinking about patient experience in those terms. That the, the patient experience of being an inpatient on a mental health ward is an experience of itself that's different from other forms of healthcare. So that's the first thing I like was, was thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. The other things I was kind of thinking about was, in some ways, there's for me, it feels like it's a confusion in the idea of patient experience feedback about what's being asked. There's the question of how are you doing dear patient, is a very, very different question from how are we doing as the people who are providing you a service. It goes back a little bit to what James was saying about power. And I think there's, there's a fairly well-recognised um, thing that happens that people who complain about things become the focus of the complaint. And I can mm. see why you might not be very keen on feeding back in real time on your experiences when you are depending upon those staff to provide you with good care. The other, the other question from, for, for me as, as a kind of lay person looking at this from the outside, not being an academic, not being a, a medical person, not being a mental health professional, is what is it we are homogenizing into the idea of patient feedback or patient experience? What is it that we're actually expecting people to tell us because one of the things that I kind of think people aren't going to tell you is how to improve your service directly. Because they're like, actually, I'd really like something to happen now. I think there's a thing about thinking about patient experience data for policy improvement, which means please give us your experiences so we can make things better for other people in the future, which doesn't necessarily meet with please tell us how you're doing today and how we're doing today so we can change things now. So there's a kind of interesting contrast between structural change and real-time change. Um, they're just some thoughts. Um, I'm sorry if they're a bit unfocused, but hopefully some of them will land with my other panel members. Yeah, no, I think they do reflect some of the things that have come out of the study. And I know yesterday we were talking about on the pre-call around... Um, sort of the relationship aspects as well that we focus on quantitative data but actually what's um, often really important is the relationship they've got with um, you know the clinician at the time and we don't focus on that as much um, because that might not be as important organisationally but it might be the most important person the aspect of a person's recovery so lots of interesting um, points really there and um Scott, I wondered if at this point you wanted to come in. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I think both Mark and James raised really important things that we, that we kind of touch on in, in the study. So Mark's point about what it's for was picked up on very often, particularly by staff, that staff perceive 
the need to require feedback as kind of feeding the beast of kind of regulation and compliance and, and for bureaucratic reasons, because, you know, trusts have to return information, you know, to some black hole somewhere. And generally speaking, unfortunately, collecting feedback, and Sarah Jane, I'm sure will kind of, you know, echo this, it, generally it's not seen as part of quality improvement. It's seen as, as compliance and regulation. The other, and then coming to James's point, which was really important about power, we must remember that the majority of people who are in, in, in patients on our wards are detained. They're not there through choice. They're there because they have to be. And it's absolutely right that the relationships that they have with staff absolutely sort of determine what they're willing to say, when they're willing to, to, to tell us about their feedback. Um, and there's one very sort of concrete example that came out in the data, and, and that's around certain things on the wards that patients are discouraged from talking about. So people are very disturbed and having psychotic experiences. There's a school of thought that says if you kind of enter into a discussion about delusions and hallucinations, that you kind of fuel them or make them worse in some way. Yeah. So patients can pick up on this feeling that I'm not, I'm not meant to be talking about that. When I mention that, the conversation gets closed down. Well, actually, closing down conversations at that point makes people less likely to then be open later on when they're being asked about feedback and how they found their experiences. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, there's something in that about the cultural shift as well, because I know when I trained in the early 90s as a nurse, we were certainly taught, you know, not to enter into discussions with people about their voices and how, you know, it would reinforce the kind of delusional beliefs. And clearly, you know, there's much more enlightened work happening these days around having dialogue with people, understanding people's voices, that voices aren't always a negative experience for people. So there's been quite a shift, but there's still quite a lot to do culturally, isn't there? And the report picks up on that as well. Um, so I wondered if the panel had any thoughts in terms of the cultural um, aspects of change and how we kind of how we respond to that with inpatient feedback and how think, we know that changes are made as well. I mean, I think people do bring up the cultural aspects of care and they do feed them back. Um, and one of the things when we did the national survey is we saw that actually collecting feedback, there's a lot of energy expended on collecting feedback, but it's not necessarily that data isn't very well analysed. And, and when it makes change, the kind of change it makes is, is usually what we call kind of environmental. So there might be more fruit on the ward or they might move the chairs in the waiting room or they might um, hang more art or um, get board games. They're, they're, they're kind of measurable changes. The temperature goes up and down. They try and change the noisy levels at night. Um, but what they don't do so well is respond to that feedback that's both positive and negative about the culture of care, about the way that they're being treated on the wards. Uh, and that was very important in terms of people's experience of wanting to give that feedback. It's just that it doesn't fit as easily into the systems for quality improvement because cultural change is very difficult and it's not necessarily measurable in the same metrics. And so often it's easier for busy time pressed people who are using it in the reporting function or feeding the beast as Scott referred to it, um, which was also referred to by some of our participants. Um, it, it's not so easy to measure that kind of um, cultural change that people are looking for. And that's really what we were very interested in trying to find examples of. Yeah, and that's really important, given that we said, you know, started by talking about the Francis report and, you know, all the issues there around um, 
you know, reassurance rather than actually being aware of what was happening on the ground in ward settings and certainly in, in mental health as well, where, you know, people like we've talked about don't always have a voice and people are detained under the Mental Health Act. And as we said, people feel, you know, when they're unwell that they're not able to give feedback. It's um, It's really striking, isn't it? It's also what we call feedback. So lots of people spent quite a bit of time thinking very hard about how they wanted to give feedback. And sometimes it wasn't necessarily a formal mechanism. They they wrote quite a long card or a letter to the ward saying, thank you for this particular episode of care that you gave me. You listened to me when I was really unwell or you you sat with me when I was very distressed. And, and uh, what was interesting to us is that positive feedback is not valued, unfortunately, either by the staff who it's a nice thing to have but it doesn't they don't respond to it in the same way that they would for example if someone had written a long letter of complaint it doesn't engage the same formal process and it, it isn't received in the same way in terms of learning what we're doing well so that we keep hold of it and when we went back to speak to staff the way we described it was if you were kind of steering in just one direction constantly kind of going left you end up going in circles and slightly that's what happens in quality improvement because you adjust things constantly in response to negative feedback and they're not really taking into that balanced view of kind of positive things that have been said so that they don't um there are negative experiences that people have and and those definitely need to be looked at but they're also positive things that happen that could get lost along the way whilst they're constantly responding to these negatives yeah yeah and um, before, um, Nikki, I'm just wondering, and we'll come on to James next as well, if you've got anything coming through from social media. Yeah, I've got three completely disparate types of questions. So shall I just ask them and whoever wants them, jump on them. Okay, so um, yesterday we had a practitioner coming to us um, saying, basically, what happens to feedback? And they're very much picking up on that, you know, it's a task I have to do. Why? Like, what happens to it? Um, there's another one coming from, um, I think there's some students watching on WhatsApp because they seem to be circulating questions. Um, I'm a student, what can I do to make a difference? Which is a, a lovely question. And then there's my, our first methodology question. Oh, wow. Go us. Um, what's a coding framework? So that's, that's me. So the first one was what happens to feedback? Shall I, I, I mean, I can mention something about that in the context of care opinion, um, because, because, because I think it's also an obstacle for uh, patients and service users very often to, to giving feedback is that sense of, well, what's the point? Mm. I mean, who, who's listening? Is anybody listening? Is anything going to happen? Or indeed, you know, I've given feedback before and I can see that it made no difference. So why would I do it again? And I think that in order to have a healthy feedback culture and, um, and you know, um, and, and make that and really hear from people, you have to show them what's, what's changing and how it's making a difference. And so one of the sort of design principles right from the start of Care Opinion was to make sure that we, you could see when a story that somebody had told had made a difference mm. or, or you could see when it hadn't. You yeah. know, when it was being ignored, you could see that too. So it, it, mm -hmm. it always seemed really important to us to be able to show people that actually their stories could make a difference. I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that we've gone far enough. I don't think we have gone far enough with that. Um, but, but, but certainly at Care Opinion, we found that stories can make a difference for, for the provision of care, but they can also make a difference, for example, for commissioners of care. 
and for policymakers and for researchers and for students in educating mm -hmm. students. So we try, one of the reasons we make those stories public on care opinion is because we don't know what all the, rel rel all the relevant impacts might be and all the potential users of that feedback, who they might all be. And indeed, they might be patient advocates and activists mm. who, could, who could take that feedback too. For, um, and we, you know, and sometimes people do come on to care opinion and find stories that they use in, in campaigning around particular mm. issues. Um, so, so I think whatever we do, we have to try and make impacts visible of people's feedback. And first of all, I think the duty is to make it visible to the people who shared the feedback. Mm. Yes. So there's a couple of people saying um, this very thought-provoking and they love the analogy of left-focused steering only, which I think it really makes sense, that doesn't it? Does anyone want to have a go at explaining in, in simple terms what a coding framework is and what it's for? Mm -hmm. I don't mind doing that. Um, so when we acted out, the, so we, we interviewed people and we typed up everything that they said. And uh, when we wanted to work out what the important things to put out of that were, um, we presented it to the group of people who had lived experience and we acted it out and they called out the words that they thought were most important. So things like trust um, was, was a good one. Uh, and uh, what we needed to then do is we had a lot of interviews. We interviewed staff, we interviewed patients, we interviewed carers, uh, and we would look for all the examples where people were talking about trust in the interviews and we would group them together and trust was just one um, word that could have been that was a code and, and so the coding framework refers to all of those themes that we pulled out uh, and, and the way that we then analyze the data. I think that's really helpful isn't it because I think it's very mysterious to a lot of people yeah. how you get from asking a question to giving a report or, or presenting research and even though it's written down it's not necessarily intuitive to some people I think. No, it's a way of making sense of a lot of data uh, and a lot of qualitative data. Um, so the ones from a student, last one I've got from a student is, um, I'm just a student, what can I do to make a difference? Mm, good question. We, we get asked that from time to time, a, a mm. care opinion. I mean, mainly in the context of physical health care, because we, we do quite a lot of teaching of nursing students and therapy students online like this. And they always say, you know, what can I do? Um, and I always think, well, the first thing is to make sure that your patients know that they can give feedback and how they can give feedback and, you know, what the different ways might be and what the different purposes might be. Because different routes, you know, seem to have different purposes. Some of them are to feed the beast. Uh, some of them are to, to create change. So just um, letting, uh, making sure that your patients or your service users are aware of the possibilities of feedback and how they could do it seems really important to me. And then I always think the second thing is making sure the staff that you work with are also aware of the feedback that there already is about their service. Because often we find ward staff, for example, who have no idea that they have hundreds of stories about their service on care opinion. They've never looked. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just seems a terrible shame. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I think as well with students is that often they're the people who are on the wards who've got more time to spend with, with people. And I think something about the relationship people can have with students can sometimes be sort of less threatening and um, that, you know, more able to um, talk to students openly. I mean, I'm reflecting back on my experience a long, long time ago, but um, also, you know, more recent experience of students, I think 
they have a really um, important role in listening to people's stories and communicating those stories as well. So I think, you know, it's for me, um, you know, stories provide feedback as well, don't they? It doesn't always have to be the more formal feedback, um, you know, verbal feedback um, given to a student is also really important. And they've, they're in a really good position to capture that kind of information from people. Another one. It's a long one. Are you ready? Sometimes feedback within the NHS is often looking at a, a behaviour which is only binary. The important thing is that often the final action is a result of multiple decisions or thoughts. Do the panel agree that the importance of feedback is that it's continuous to show both growth and development, but also that it has impact? Mm. Do you want me to jump in on that? Yeah, yeah please do, yeah. <laughs> um, we'd like it, if, certainly at Caribbean, we like it if feedback has impact. We like to see that. But impacts can be quite subtle. and even the act of telling a story can create an impact for the person who's sharing it. So, so I, I think sometimes just to be able to get some, something off your chest, to be able to put something out there, to tell the story of your care, what mattered to you, what was positive, what was negative. And some of those stories take many years to be able to be told. And sometimes it's the telling that marks the point of healing for somebody that they're able to now tell that story. And so, I think we might not see those impacts. We might not think that there was an impact, but actually it might be simply in the telling of the story that a lot of the impact is occurring. Yeah. Yeah. I have some more things, but they're, they're comments rather than anything else. So did you want to go back to the panel? And yeah, we're already half, half an hour in, so. Yeah, yeah, Mark, I wondered if you wanted to come in at this point at all. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's interesting for me that, the kind of James, like James's comment, just kind of very much rooted this in kind of personal experiences and healing through telling your story and stuff like that. And um, the research is looking at feedback as if it's a kind of kind of like Tesco value, like unlabeled packet. It's just you buy a ton of feedback, and then um, that's what feedback is. And I'm kind of for, for me, there is. There's two things I'm thinking about. One, it's profoundly strange to think of providing such an intimate service to people without having a strong idea of what it's doing and what people feel about it. Um, so on that level, it's very strange. But it's kind of thinking about what the expected content is of patient experience feedback. Like, like what is it? we're actually expecting people to say what is it we're actually expecting people to do once they've said that. Um, and that's that's kind of more a, a question for the, the, the research team a little bit. I kind of feel that patient experience feedback, yeah, it's a bit of a white label kind of term for something we kind of probably all know what the contents of it might be. So kind of, I'm, I'm throwing a question there because mm. I, I don't have a horse in this race. <laughs> <laughs> not being an academic or a mental health professional. Sarah or Scott, do you want to comment? Uh, I mean, so, uh, I mean, I think it's very interesting, first of all, the terminology that we use, because actually we are talking about feedback because that's a comfortable phrase. But actually, where we began was the use of patient experience data. That's the kind of technical 
terms of what is patient experience? Well, I think it's whether the care that you've received meets your expectations, you know, whether it's of a high quality, whether it's something that you've, well, we know a lot about because coming back to that sort of review that I mentioned that we did, we did a systematic review of what pe people most value about inpatient care. And as I said, this was international research and there's many, many studies that we pulled together and looked at together. And it's, it's very evident that the overwhelming thing that most impacts people's experience of, of inpatient care are relational. That is having somebody or having somebody or people that you trust, that you can confide in, that you can have a therapeutic conversation and a therapeutic relationship with. And everything else that happens is influenced by that. So the other kind of main things that people kind of talk about are kind of aversive experiences of, of you know, coercion on wards that sometimes happens. Um, they talk about being bored and unoccupied and kind of sometimes being afraid of where they are. All of those are moderated and either made bearable or, or, or not bearable by the relationships that they have with the staff on the wards. So mm -hmm. I think most of that sort of experience is conditioned by the way that people are treated. So I would jump back actually, the really interesting question that the student asked, because we distinguish and we found out that a great deal of the sort of feedback that, that we get or that people give is what you would call informal. It's not in response to a questionnaire. It's not even sort of on care opinion. It's talking to someone that you happen to be kind of in, engaging with or interacting with on, on, on the ward. And that sort of feedback is most often given to the, the people who are the lowest banded, the lowest graded staff on also students and unqualified staff, because probably, as, as you suggested, those are the folks that um, patients yeah. spend the most time with. Yeah. And when they trust them, then they share information. So I would say to the student, just keep listening, because mm. that's, that's gold, that's, you know, that's fantastic evidence. But also share it, share it with colleagues, share it in your MDTs, share it in your kind of microsystems meetings when you go to those just remember it because that's people are telling you the way that they want us to do our jobs yeah. it's really important for students to hear that mm. yeah are you ready for a few more yes please you're, like, you're bracing yourselves yeah we are <laughs> so um <laughs> someone's uh grant fraser king is is um quoting colin murray parks saying when people are telling us their story they're often hearing their story for the first time i think that's mm. Again, something that the, the, the team have been talking about. Um, Fraser Gilmore was asking, how should services communicate positive change based on feedback, not just internally, but to patients? And someone who prefer to remain anonymous says, what's wrong with the friends and family question? Oh. And I'm glad that people feel that they can just ask stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Good. Well done. <laughs> so the first one was, how should uh, services um, communicate positive change based on feedback? Yeah, I should just throw that up and say whoever wants to. Have well, a I, I, they, they should communicate it in, in all possible ways, in whatever ways they can. And as I said earlier, I think first to the people who, who are um, giving the feedback. Um, so, you know, showing people how their feedback makes a difference is very important. And they should be showing that to, to the service users and to, to relatives. They should be showing it to other staff because because actually um, working in an organization that you can see listens to feedback and acts on it and makes changes and is not defensive affects staff culture 
and that's that's very important so knowing that you're in an open organization where people don't get all upset and defensive when you suggest how things could be better is a good organization for staff to work in as well as for, for patients and service users to be cared for in um, so they, they so organizations should share that feedback um, with staff too and of course with commissioners and I think with the public I think yeah. all, almost all forms of feedback could be shared much more publicly than they actually are they're hardly ever confidential they hardly ever raise data protection issues and it, it amazes me how difficult it is to find out what the current feedback on any given NHS organization is. I mean, you know, there, there'll be occasional sort of PDF reports or there might be a spreadsheet that you have to download somewhere or something, but it's terribly obscure. I mean, it, it could be shared much, much more easily and more accessibly, I think, with the public right across the NHS. Mm. I think that's it. Yeah. Sorry, I Please. think that's Right. Um, I, I think that one of the things we looked at was the need to what Scott calls shorten the loops between um, the feedback that comes in and the ward. So the people on the ward and the staff who are working there, so those who are receiving the care and the staff. And, that, and that's important for a series of reasons. One of them is um, the staff get very um, uh, um, tired of asking for feedback if nothing changes, because then what happens is they get resistance. So they're less likely to want to ask someone, please give me your feedback. Um, if actually nothing has changed and they know full well that they're then going to get a barrage of um, complaint because why would I give you my feedback when nothing's changed? So there's something there about actually um, closing those loops and giving people um, more responsibility to make those changes that they want to make at a local level. Uh, and the second part of that kind of need to close that loop is really because um, the staff, when they're sort of working with patients on the ward and they're trying to give um, kind of a positive and meaningful experience and respond to these small and large instances that go on on the ward. Um, uh, they they kind of they collect all this information and they they send it off as, as they call it to the black hole or to feed the beast, uh, and it, it never comes back. And so they don't really know what they're doing it for and what's happening with it, and they can't actually make change. So it might come back far too late. So you know something may come back months later, uh, and things have moved on. You know the ward has turned over. People have changed. Uh, and so it's very difficult for them to practically make a change at that point because either the person who it was going to be very meaningful for may not be there um, or uh, something in the ward has already changed in that sort of microsystem that's going on. So um, I think closing those loops is, is really important for staff as well as for um, feeding back to the patients who give their experience. Thank you. Um, what is wrong with the friends and family question? Says Keeman, his question. <laughs> no, I, I was dissing it, wasn't I? So I you were dissing it. <laughs> say what I think is wrong. Well, I can tell you what was wrong with it um, for the first uh, sort of. Should we say what it is first for anyone who's yeah, not? So the, the Friends and Families has something that was introduced by NHS England or, or actually by the government in, in 2013. And the idea was that everybody who used NHS care in England should be asked this question. And the question was broadly would you recommend this service uh, to your friends and family if they had a similar uh, condition or problem? It was something along those lines, and you could say, you know, I definitely would, or I definitely wouldn't. Or there's a sort of five levels of response you could give. Um, uh, and so it produced a simple number, and the idea was that everybody was going to compare the, the scores of different organisations and different wards and so on to say which ones were the best and the worst. Uh, but pretty soon people realised you couldn't actually do that because... 
uh, the response rate was so low that you get a bias in um, in the measurement. But the, the reason the question was a poor question was because um, people would say, well, you know, I've just been for my cancer care, for example, or in this context, I've just been, you know, sectioned on a ward, and you're asking me whether I'd recommend this experience to my mm -hmm. friends and family. Well, of course, I wouldn't recommend it. So mm -hmm. it was very difficult for people to sort of feel that, you know, it was a question that made any kind of sense to them. And it it resulted in NHS England tweeting bizarre things like 97% of people would recommend an ambulance. And you sort of think, well, you know, what, what does that even mean? I mean, what, you know, when, when would they recommend an ambulance and to whom and for what? You know, it doesn't make any <laughs> sort of sense. So it sort of seemed like a meaningless thing, really. Yeah. And I think, although lots of people were quite happy to fill it in, I think lots of people felt it was a slightly insulting question to have to fill in. The other problem, of course, is it doesn't give you any information to act on. You know, yeah. just knowing if people were reasonably satisfied or not doesn't give you any sort of depth about the nature of their experiences or what, what was good or bad about it. So at an organisational level, it's not clear what, you know, what action responses should lead to. Mm -hmm. People are saying um, there's something quite offensive in the idea of recommending a, a service where there's little uh, consumer choice in it. So little consumer choice you don't choose to, you don't choose to get sectioned um, and i've also got one which is anonymous here which is just and i'll, I'll leave this out there for you to to, to to ponder um you say we did with an emoticon eye roll so i think something when when we repeat stuff too much it gets it gets boring and meaningless i think that's what that means <laughs> and also of course as we were saying earlier i think as has been said a couple of times the the you said we did kind of approach allows potentially allows organisations to cherry pick the easy issues to say, you know, you said you wanted sort of, um, you know, different chairs, so we've changed the chairs sort of thing. But actually what you also said was you wanted staff to really listen to you and be kind when you were upset. And, you know, what have you done about that? Well, mm, that's really hard, so we won't mention it because it is really hard. But actually, as Scott was saying earlier, it's perhaps the most important thing and probably much more important than the chairs. Is anyone getting... Or, or anyone got any way of measuring that sort of stuff or actually feeding it back that's actually working? Is there any sharing of good practice? We did see some examples of good practice. Um, and it was where people were thoughtfully engaged in observing the impact of things in the ward or the trust. So um, an example was where they'd observed that the MDT meeting happened to be at the same, it was delaying people being allowed out on leave. And so people were increasingly frustrated and clustering at the door and waiting for people to come out of the MDT meeting, which often overran. Uh, and it led to um, an increase in incidents on the ward because actually people were frustrated and they'd been promised that they would be allowed to go out at a certain time. Uh, and so they they changed the way that they were running their MDT meetings to listen to people saying we're frustrated for we don't want to keep waiting for you. So you had sort of very small scale examples of things like that, but it required piecing together um, the the feedback in in a different way. And sometimes the system didn't necessarily allow those those things to be um, overviewed. So one of the kind of key findings from the study is that. Uh, people would look at safety and critical incidents data completely separately from feedback and experience data or clinical outcomes. And actually, you really can only make sense of something if you've got the whole picture. And so it was much more meaningful where they could integrate those and actually think, oh, well, this might be why we've got that 
bad outcome on this particular ward, we can do something about it. So there were small examples of that, but even from the um, initial kind of telephone survey of trusts, we knew that most trusts, I mean, roughly a quarter were um, struggling to collect any data at all, or even ask people for feedback. About half were collecting it, but not probably using it very effectively. And only really a quarter were trying to use it for quality improvements. There was a lot of energy being expended on collecting it, but very few actually managed to focus on analysing it and make sense of it. Because it, it, if you can't make it meaningful, then you can't really improve, um, which is a shame because of the volume that has been being collected. Thank you. Vanessa, you're on mute. <laughs> How many times has everyone said that over the last three months? I know, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, um, I'm conscious that we're in the last few minutes. So I was thinking it might be good to actually um, sum up and maybe share any um, any thoughts from what we've discussed and maybe any tips for um, clinicians and any thoughts for people who are listening who use mental health services as well, just in the last few minutes. So I'll just throw that up. And Mark, do you want to yeah, maybe? Yeah, so, 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 so my, my challenge with this is what, would any of us tell someone who is currently on a ward now or has just left a ward and been discharged mm. about what they should expect around all of this, um, what they should do, what they, what hope they have of things changing if things didn't work out? Because the thing for me that I keep coming back to is when we say that it's the people who have trust and have that strong relationship give us feedback. Um, it's the people that things don't work for who are most likely to have a bad experience of that, who are also the people who are least likely within the structures we create to find a way of expressing what happened to them. Mm. Mm. Um, so, so I kind of think, you know, what, what would you advise people now who actually they feel like they're on a ward and people aren't listening? Like, what would you do? And the other, the other thing in terms of summing up is I kind of wonder at what point um, your own personal um, patient experience becomes seen as patient activism if you have had a chance to reflect on past experiences for instance, and a chance to talk to other people who've experienced similar, at what point do you become discounted because you find that you have a common experience with others? I, just, I, I Some of this stuff doesn't sit very comfortably for me because I find it very difficult to ground it yeah. in the experience of people who are on the receiving end of stuff yeah. rather than the staff or structural quality improvement end of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, I have more questions than I have answers, um, is my summing up. Mm. Okay, any thoughts? I'll just go down the screen, actually, for the last few minutes. So, Scott, shall I come over to you? Any thoughts? Um, frames it really well. I think that's a fantastic question, actually. What would we say to our service users? And I think the, the answer is to keep as best you can and as safely as you can to keep giving that feedback I accept that you know people are only going to give it when they feel that they trust folks and actually the sort of paradox is if you've had a bad experience of care where you don't feel people have been very trustworthy then why would you but i think this is where 
you know, the fantastic sort of work that, that Care Opinions does comes into it. And many, many trusts are now signed up to it. And that's both really safe because it's not giving feedback directly to the organization. And it's also relational that you will get a response. And actually that might give you the confidence to actually then go on and sort of share more, more of your experience. Mm, yeah, that's great. And it does raise the importance of outcome measures, actually, um, looking at the relationship aspects rather than just focusing on what we think is a sign of improvement. I mean, that's the thing that I've picked up from the conversation tonight, really, that, you know, maybe what we measure, not just in terms of feedback, but in terms of clinical outcomes, isn't actually what's important to people. And we need to look at that as an area as well. Hmm. So, um, Sarah Jane, last minute thoughts from yourself. Thank you. So I think we've kind of given some advice to trainee staff and we've um, thought about what patients themselves might like to do. Um, I suppose the kind of the other layer of this is the trusts themselves as they govern, as they um, make plans for what they might like to do. And I think paying attention to how data is analysed and the time spent on that and how it's meaningfully getting quickly back to the people who can use it to make practical change is the next challenge. And we, we don't have all the answers. I think the study certainly, is, as um, Mark said, it kind of uncovered a whole load more questions that we need to answer and um, but I think that's the the bit where I would focus my attention if I was a trust that was thinking about what what should we be doing in terms of governance yeah and James over to yourself well uh, I mean it's tempting to open up a whole new can of worms there's lots more <laughs> interesting things to talk about I, I I thought I might just um respond to Mark's really interesting point that he just made about when does feedback become activism? You know, in some sense, when when does one person's experience become many people's experiences? And when do those many experiences, when should they lead to something more than just sharing a story? You know, um, and, I, and I think that's, that's a great question to ask. And, and certainly our experience of care opinion is very often the people who are sharing their stories positive or negative, are the people who are hoping to make a change and support improvement in services. And so sharing a story, giving feedback might be the first step for, for, for many people on a journey towards other kinds of involvement, which might be, you know, you might see as oppositional kinds of involvement like campaigning, or they might be much more uh, collaborative forms of involvement like um, patient and public involvement groups or, you know, getting involved in organisational structures, existing structures and processes for improvement. But, but very often people are giving feedback because they want to help both staff and other, other patients and service users to have a better experience. And so, to my mind, there's no hard and fast distinction between feedback and activism. I think there's a a scale as a spectrum of, in, of involvement and we should welcome all those kinds of involvement. Of course, mental health in particular is one of those areas of healthcare which for, for many decades has had a strong user movement, which most areas of healthcare don't actually have. Mm. Um, and, and so health services, I think, should be welcoming that, that kind of um, desire on the part of service users, on the part of citizens, to help improve the services that they rely on. Mm. Yeah, I think they're all really important. 
points. And, um, and Nikki, any um, last minute, yes, but, yeah. minute comments from yourself even as well? One of, we one of my colleagues, um, children who's just going to bed, says goodnight to the panel. So goodnight, Callum. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know we have a range of audience. That's good. Um, uh, the act of sincere listening is an intervention in and of itself. Uh, one person would like to comment, which I think is absolutely true. And I think it's, it's been so interesting when you look at the fact that we talk about this as, as a relational thing and how important that kind of human relationship is. And, and I think it really moves us away from that awful experience. I mean, I can remember when I was a baby nurse on the wards, I used to absolutely dread going to get feedback because there was stuff I just couldn't do anything about. And I'd always ask people what I'd like to be better and totally agree with them and then be able to do nothing about it. And it was heartbreaking. It led you around in this big circle. Um, another person um, from the Facebook Live Point said um, that they recommend um, nursing students in particular follow individuals, presumably um, service users, people with mental health experience on social media who document their recovery journeys and, and use that as a novel form of feedback that people can learn from. So there's lots of lots of different options out there. But I really would like to say thank you very much for making um, research linked to practice and open to staff in a way that's actually, I don't think I've ever had a student ask a methodology question before. So thank you very, very much. <laughs> Normally it's the bit they just skip straight over to the findings. <laughs> so I'm really pleased. Thank you. Vanessa? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think we're coming to the end. So, I mean, for me, uh, just to say thank you. I mean, I've learned so much from from this study. Um, I think for me, um, in terms of, you know, the patient experience and the sort of difference between what we might think about as a clinician versus um, what's important to people who are using mental health services is really important. And of course, that whole issue that it highlights about you know if people are complaining and then they come back into hospital and they see that nothing's changed we really need to make a concerted effort so that people actually see that we're listening and that we're making changes and of course we need to use um you know patient experience data more meaningfully generally as well and as you've highlighted particularly around culture and relationships and and that kind of thing so i think it's been really interesting and yeah, we've had lots of comments tonight as well which has been brilliant and um yeah, and maybe we'll come back to it as well, you know, yeah. as and when things develop right, in the future. You know, you've got an invitation back any time, I guess, to, to share any updates with us. So thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so, Dave, then, we're saying good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs>